Welcome to A Thought for Food, a special series within the Science in the City podcast, produced by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Episode 9, Going to Seed. This is the second installment of our six-part examination of the most quintessentially American plate of food we could think of, a cheeseburger with french fries. And today, we're going to look at the first thing you bite into when you pick up your burger, the bun, which is, of course, just a small loaf of bread. And bread is fascinating stuff. Like we mentioned last time, bread is one of a couple of solutions that human beings have developed to solve the problem of grass. Grasses of different kinds are one of the most plentiful types of vegetation in the world. And there are parts of the world called grasslands or plains or savannas where it's completely dominant. There are literally miles and miles and miles with almost nothing else in the way of plant life. And the trouble with grass is that we can't eat it. I mean, we could, but we don't have the right equipment in our digestive system to get any real nutritional value out of it. So. Over millions of years of voracious omnivorism, systematically finding every possible edible thing on this planet and just about every possible way of preparing them, human beings came up with two solutions of how to get sustenance from grass. The first is by noticing that there are animals that can eat grass. Cows, sheep, horses, and so forth. In fact, it's their favorite thing to eat. So. One way to get human nutrition from grass is to let the animals eat it, and then eat the animals. First by hunting them, and then later on by domesticating them. So far, so good. The second and trickier solution came because, through what was no doubt centuries of trial and error, we discovered that there is one part of the grass that we can get nutritional value out of. Not the stems or the leaves that make up almost all of the plant, but rather it's itty bitty little seeds. But there are several problems with this. The first is that the seeds of wild grasses really are tiny. Even from the yield of an enormous field of it, there wouldn't be enough edible material for even a light lunch. So we did exactly the same thing we learned about in the last episode, when we took the ornery and dangerous aurochs and turned it into the docile and herdable cow. A many-centuries-long project of botanical husbandry, human-directed evolution, if you like, to encourage the traits we wanted and discourage the ones we didn't. In this case, to make these grains yield larger and larger seeds, far larger than the plant actually needed for its own reproduction. This process took thousands of years to accomplish, and in the course of doing it, we not only changed the plants we were developing forever, changing those wild grasses into what we now call cereal grains, wheat, rice, barley, oats, and so forth. We also changed human society forever. Here's Carol Sinclair, who, along with her husband Tom, wrote a terrific book about the history of agriculture. You gathered, you found out which ones were the most valuable in this process. You, you planted those, possibly accidentally at first, later on, intentionally. And you started staking a claim on lands that were productive. And, and this changed the entire world. It, it changed the way uh, people interacted, the way they ate, the way they worked. This change was one from human beings living in small nomadic groups that got the food they needed by hunting and 
gathering wild plants, to human beings living in large groups that more or less stay in one place and get their food by cultivating a particular piece of land. We call this process civilization, which comes from the Latin and literally means cityfying. Here's Tom Sinclair. Well, it happened gradually. I mean, you wouldn't say, okay, we're going to quit hunting today and we're going to grow wheat. But uh, gradually, as they started growing it, then they had, they had to settle down to tend the crop and to store the grain. People had to be organized then, so they had to keep track of things. And this required uh, writing and it required mathematics. Uh, and, and usually it was, they, this uh, also brought in elements of religion to kind of focus the whole society. Was a was a direct outcome of, of growing crops. The second problem with eating grains is that even if you've figured out how to grow them in sufficient quantities, getting at the nutritious part of those seeds, which is called their kernels, is often quite difficult. The earliest grains, I mean, people would have chewed them, but, but most grains are hard, and they're hard on your teeth, they're hard on your digestive tract. So from just chewing grains, we would come to cracking grains, somehow opening them up and adding water to soften them. So a softened grain then became easier to eat. With many grains, and wheat is a good example, you have to break each individual kernel out of an inedible outer casing or hull. The most efficient way to do this is by taking a bunch of these wheat pods and grinding them up between two rocks, then sifting the results. This is called milling, or separating the wheat from the chaff. And it yields a kind of thick powder made of the ground-up edible parts. This is, of course, flour. And there's still another problem. Unlike fruit or meat or milk or most vegetables, to eat cereal grains, even after they're smashed up, you also have to cook them. Most of them just aren't any good raw. And the worldwide favorite solution to how to cook the ground-up seeds of the plant we call wheat, which is the most popular cereal grain in the world, is to make something we call bread. Here's a frequent contributor to this series, Maudie Nelson. She's director of community outreach for the Institute of Human Nutrition at Columbia University. I would define bread as a, um, a product that comes from taking a grain, uh, pressing it, grinding it in such a way that you make the starch available, and then the starch is worked with liquid until you have a, achieved a dough. And then your dough can be handled in a few more ways to come up with an edible product. Because you're not going to eat this soppy, gloppy, <laughs> um, mud-textured dough. And over the centuries, literally thousands of different recipes and techniques for cooking this dough have evolved. All over the world, People make all forms of bread. Uh, we make breads with all kinds of added ingredients to make them interesting. They can be boiled, they are baked, they're cooked on the side of a hoe. <laughs> One popular variation that's been developed involves the amount of processing that's done to the wheat as it's milled. A wheat kernel, or wheat berry as it's sometimes called, has three parts. A germ, which is actually the embryo of the plant, a bran, which is a kind of protective covering, and an endosperm, which is the starchy part in between the two. What people discovered is that you could change the texture and flavor of the bread by separating these three parts out in the milling and changing their ratio in the finished flour. 
As that process was discovered, people developed a taste for flour that is mostly endosperm, with much less bran and germ. It's lighter, both in texture and color, and it has a more delicate flavor. Eventually, people started using bleaching agents like chlorine and benzoyl peroxide in the milling process to make a flour that's snowy white and can be made into baked goods with a kind of airy, spongy texture that became extremely popular. This is what allowed the invention of desserts like angel food cake and also of modern white bread. Most of the bread in the, in the nation's supermarkets is what we call white bread made with refined white flour. And refined doesn't mean that it, it sticks its pinky up when it holds its coffee cup. It means that the kernel of wheat has been stripped of its outer jacket or the bran and also stripped of its germ, which is the concentrated stuff that is really responsible for when the wheat seed germinates to make a new wheat plant. So it takes away those two things, which are really part of what imparts flavor and texture, and a host of vitamins and minerals and fiber. And once you've refined away those, you have a softer flour lends itself to a lot of ways of making breads and pastries and pie crusts and cookies and the like. So this is what is meant by whole wheat flour. Flour with the original proportion of bran and germ in it, unlike white flour, which is skewed heavily towards endosperm. And as Wadeen mentioned, that loss definitely has nutritional implications. That's where most of the fiber in wheat is, and also much of the micronutrient content. Though the loss of micronutrients is offset by the fact that most white flour is enriched, which means that the vitamins and minerals that were removed in the processing are added back in. And these days, flour is also fortified with an important B vitamin called folic acid, meaning that more of it is added than would have been originally present in the unseparated wheat. You'll notice that I said that whole wheat flour has the original proportion of bran and germ in it. That's because, in the U.S. anyway, for a bread to be called 100% whole wheat, it doesn't actually need to be made of whole unseparated wheat kernels. It only needs to have the equivalent proportions of those three parts as if it had been made that way. In the refining process, I could take 100 pounds of wheat flour, grind it up, come out with 70 pounds of flour, uh, 10 pounds of bran, and 20 pounds of germ, it, hypothetically. And I could sit the bran and the germ off to the side in barrels. Now, I'm going to use that 70 pounds of nice, finer, softer flour to make a bunch of stuff, crackers, cookies. And if I want to make a bread or a product, a pretzel, or something that on which I'm using 100% whole wheat flour, I can just go back over to the barrels and scoop out enough wheat bran and wheat germ and kind of reconstitute my flour so it comes back to being defined as 100% whole wheat, even if it's the, the process of doing that involved separating the wheat and then bringing it back. The potential problem there is that it assumes we understand everything that is being lost when the flour is separated so that we can add it all back in. We might, or we might be close, but biological systems are really complex. And it'd be difficult to say we understand any of them completely enough to recreate them successfully in that way. If you want to buy flour that's made of complete wheat kernels, 
It turns out that the term to look for on the package is not whole wheat, but rather stone ground. Something which is stone ground, by definition, means that I got the wheat kernels, I ground them all up, and now they're still here in one big pile. And now we move on to what I think is the strangest and most interesting innovation in this whole long history of bread making. And that's the use of leavening. Leavening means that you are allowing something to create very small bubbles that will lift the dough and make it lighter while the dough is cooking. And then at this point where the dough is considered cooked, that lighter lifted texture will remain in place. To put that another way, you're injecting gas into your lump of raw dough in such a way that it kind of inflates. There are two ways of doing this. The first is by mixing some kind of strongly acidic ingredient, like vinegar or lemon juice or buttermilk, with a particularly alkaline salt called sodium bicarbonate, which is also known as baking soda. The resulting reaction is one I bet a lot of people listening to this can picture. Because very many of us made baking soda and vinegar-powered paper mache volcanoes in elementary school. Now, if you remember, you dump the two things in the top of your volcano, wait a few seconds, and then a completely satisfying stream of bubbly mess comes flowing out the top. I don't at all remember what any of that had to do with geology, but it's exactly what's happening inside of biscuits and scones, which are leavened in this way. To make the whole thing easier, you can also buy baking powder, which is baking soda and some kind of acid, frequently tartaric acid, held in the proper proportions in a kind of suspension, which then activates when you add water. Bread made with this kind of leavening is sometimes called quick bread. Hamburger buns, though, almost always use the other kind of leavening, the more popular, older, and stranger kind. Uh, So in our kind of all-purpose hamburger roll, sandwich bread type leavening, the agent to create the bubbles is yeast. Yeast is a kind of microscopic fungus, and it's as ubiquitous a critter as there is in this world. It's everywhere, in almost every climate, floating wild in the air. In most places in the world, if you were to take the basic raw material of bread, wet flour, and just leave it out on the counter, eventually it would start to bubble because it would become colonized with some kind of wild yeast. As you and I sit here in the room, there's yeast in the air. And if we were going to be survivalists who wanted to make our own bread, we could count on certain amount of airborne, naturally occurring yeast, which may vary from different parts of the country, different altitudes, different climates by temperature change. And those yeasts can land on our food or land on our, our, whatever it is we're getting ready to eat and start their own numbers dividing and increasing in number. But um, when you're doing it with bread, you really want to be very selective about the kind of yeast that you grow to create the bread by flavor and by texture. So it is very special, the yeast colonies that are used in the bread industry. Or, you know, when you buy the yeast in the supermarket. When you buy yeast in the supermarket, 
Each colony, which is made up of thousands of individual yeasts, looks like a tiny little ball, which comes in a packet of hundreds of these little balls that all together look like kind of a coarse powder. So, yep, they're, they're dormant. They're, they're uh, lying quietly, waiting to be fed, and the yeast are all asleep. <laughs> Sounds a little um, once upon a time-ish. But when they are faced with liquid and a source of sugar, the yeast wake up, and it's New Year's Eve. That's because yeast love nothing more than to eat sugar. Now, if you remember from last season, starch, like in the endosperm of wheat, and fiber, like in the bran, are both complex structures made of sugar, specifically a sugar called glucose. So, to a yeast, a lump of wet flour is paradise. They wake up and start eating like crazy. And as they do, they start making waste products, one of which is carbon dioxide. And as they release the carbon dioxide, burping, if you will, the gas gets trapped in the dough as bubbles. And the dough inflates. The yeast also start reproducing, dividing into more and more yeast, And all these new yeasts also start eating and burping, and the bread rises even more. This process would potentially continue until all the starch and fiber in the dough was eaten up. But we can stop it at the point we have the texture we want by baking the bread. Because yeast can't survive high heat. This, of course, also cooks the bread, making that same starch and fiber more easily digestible for us. Now, yeast would happily munch on just about anything with water and sugar in it, But wheat is much better than anything else at receiving those magic yeast burps and turning them into interesting textures. Generally, bread is talked about as a product made from wheat because wheat has amino acids in it, which when combined, create this um, elastic texture that allows the bread to not only take form, but uh, retain its form when the leavening agents start to take effect. The amino acids she's talking about are called gliadin and glutellin. And together, they form arguably the most notorious item in food at this moment. The dreaded gluten. Not since the low-fat and sugar-free crazes of a few decades ago has something popped up so suddenly on so many packages at the grocery store as the phrase gluten-free has in the past couple of years. But what exactly is gluten? Here's another frequent contributor to this series, Dr. Michael McBurney. He's head of scientific affairs for DSM, a nutritional products company. Um, So gluten is a protein that's in wheat. Um, It can be in some other cereals like rye and barley, but it's more predominant in wheat. It's a protein, so it's a sequence of amino acids. One of the advantages about gluten is it has some really wonderful elastic properties. And it makes, it's one of the reasons that you can make great breads with wheat, because it keeps the moisture and it keeps the form. So gluten is used as a texturizing agent. Um, It has a great deal of value when you're baking and cooking. So what's all the stink about? Well, a very small percentage of the population has a serious allergy to gluten called celiac disease. 
There's some disagreement about how many people have celiac, but a median average of current estimates would put it at about one-tenth of one percent of the population. And celiac disease is one that you get a local immune reaction in the intestine, and um, it changes uh, in the intestine. We have cells that are produced in the crypts and move out along what are called fingers or villi. And that's where all the enzymes that get secreted are from the villi, and those are the cells that are responsible for absorbing nutrients into our body and into our bloodstream. Um, when you have an inflammation, you start to get sloughing of those villi, and they don't function as well in the digestion and absorption. The normal um, geography of the lining, which has these finger-like projections called villi, which increase surface area for absorbing nutrients, eventually they don't regrow and they flatten out. So what happens is you are having um, a dreadful level of absorption. You might be eating just fine, but you're not absorbing your nutrients because you've lost surface area. So if the small intestine has the surface area of a tennis court, uh, believe it or not, because of all the extra um, little projections going that occur, if that reduces down to the size of you know your living room floor, you're not going to absorb anywhere near the amount of nutrients that you're taking in. So one of the signs of that is you look malnourished, but you shouldn't be. So gluten for a person with celiac is no joke. No joke indeed. But this is also very straightforward and can be diagnosed unambiguously. The controversy is around whether there are other negative consequences to eating gluten other than celiac. Here's Dr. Stephen Pintaro, who's an expert on proteins of all kinds and teaches in the Department of Nutrition at the University of Vermont. There's no doubt that there are people who have true celiac disease, and that's very easy to diagnose. You can measure certain antibodies in their blood, and you can look at certain uh, changes in the way their intestine looks you know, in terms of inflammation, and you can say that this definitely meets the definition of celiac disease, and those individuals have to avoid gluten-containing foods altogether. But what's interesting, I think, is what's occurring over really the past decade uh, that is going way beyond that small percentage of the population that has true celiac disease to a whole other group of people who um, feel that they have a gluten sensitivity, uh, even though it's not quite sure whether there is such a thing as a gluten sensitivity. So you'll still see papers that would suggest that this is sort of a mass hysteria and others that are saying that it is a real condition. Uh, and then the fact that so many products are on the market is great for that small percentage of people who have celiac. And the people who buy it because there's this um, kind of low-grade panic about wheat is killing us all, wheat is creating schizophrenia. There's a part of me as a scientist that wants to say there's no evidence, you know, stop being such a um, hypochondriac. But when someone says, I feel better, who am I to start to push my opinion on them? You're not hurting yourself by leaving wheat out or buying gluten-free. You're spending more money. But if it's working for you, I'm happy for you, too. So and this might be one of those situations where the marketplace is sort of driving the condition in some ways. Um, the more people hear about gluten intolerance or gluten insensitivity, the more they think it might be something that 
might help explain their symptoms. They go out and they buy the products. The more they buy the products, the more industry is going to respond and produce more of these products. But if people start to uh, lose interest in this as a possible explanation for whatever symptoms they're having, then we might see less of a of a uh, influence by the food industry in producing these products. So is the whole gluten-free craze really just some kind of giant placebo effect? People talking themselves into feeling better when they make a dietary change that didn't actually have any medicinal benefit? I think that there probably is something to it, that it's more than just mass hysteria, that it's not in just in everyone's head. And I think that, as I said before, that there are some papers that are beginning to identify some unique changes in individuals. I would guess that we're going to see some something in the next five to ten years, I think, that will really sort of nail it down. Uh, Again, it distinguishes them from celiac disease. It's clearly not the same thing, but it might be something unique that uh, it, that could account for the kinds of symptoms that, that they're experiencing. Whether you've jumped on the gluten-free bandwagon or not, it would be hard to deny the importance of bread in human history, particularly in the civilizations that developed in the Middle East, Northern Africa, and Europe. Just look at the Bible. We don't thank God for bringing us this day our daily cottage cheese. And thinking about that primacy, I want to jump back a bit and again summarize the process of bread making, just to highlight how really remarkably strange the whole thing is. To make bread, you take the tiny little seeds from the top of an otherwise inedible plant, gather them up into a pile, grind them into a powder, Then take the results, mix it with water until it makes a gluey paste. Then you add a microscopic fungus that partially digests that paste and thereby inflates it with gas like a balloon. Then you place the whole mess on a hot rock until it turns brown and crusty. Then you eat it. Yum. But I mean, really, how did we ever come up with all of that? It's so unbelievably complex. And to make it work in any real quantities took nothing less than the complete reorganization of human society. It gets even stranger when you realize that this new civilized life was, at least for the first couple of millennia, a much worse way to live than hunting and gathering was. Here are the Sinclairs again. The hunter-gatherer lifestyle was actually much easier, much healthier than we tend to think of it in in current days. I mean, we look at what hunter-gatherers remain around the world, and they've been pushed to marginal uh, areas of of productivity. They're they're not living an easy life. But when there was no competition with agriculturalists, hunter-gatherers could get along with uh, gathering for an hour a day to, to find enough food um, to feed them for that day. Um, a small group, a small tribe might have one hunt a week, and that would provide enough meat for the clan for an en- entire week. Back whenever Europeans bumped into Aboriginal, they always thought they were so lazy because they didn't work, or they didn't have to. So you might very well think that if we're going to give up an easy, free-roaming lifestyle where you only have to work one hour a day or perhaps one day a week to feed your family, for one where you have to work from sunup to sundown every day cultivating a field, 
we must have at least been making that enormous sacrifice for some kind of nutritional benefit. But strangely, that is not true. The old hunter-gatherer diet, meat from wild game and fish supplemented by wild-growing vegetables, fruit, and nuts, is extremely healthy and nutritious. It's got plenty of protein, fat, and carbohydrates in good proportions. And if you're eating a good variety of wild forages, it's got a full complement of all the important micronutrients. The thing about large-scale wheat production, though, particularly before the invention of 20th century farm machinery, is that it took a tremendous amount of labor. So the societies who are invested in it wouldn't have had the time or energy to produce or gather much in the way of food except bread. And eating nothing but bread is a lousy diet. You get very little protein, almost no fat, and tons of missing vitamins and minerals, leaving you open to all those terrible micronutrient deficiency diseases, like scurvy and pellagra that we talked about last season in episode two. So why in the world did we do it? And I mean really do it. Eventually, the agricultural revolution took over almost the entire world, pushing the remaining nomadic tribes to the very fringes of human society. An old-fashioned theory is that human population grew, and therefore there wasn't enough space left for us all to be nomads anymore. For years, it, it was taught that population increased and hunter-gathering could no longer support the population. Therefore, it was necessary to go to agriculture. And, and that probably is an element in it, but I think it is not the, the determinant. There, there were other needs, uh, other desires, and the population growth probably came after agriculture was begun, not, not before. So it wasn't a cause, it was an effect. And if you think about it, this makes sense, because agriculture requires many more bodies than hunting and gathering does. So switching to agriculture would create a strong incentive to start having more and more babies that wouldn't have existed for nomads. For nomads, uh, the children are a, a bit of a liability. You've got to carry them around at first. It's years before they can, can help with the hunt. Um, agriculturalists need uh, more bodies in the field. So why, then? Why start growing grain in such massive quantities if the result is a much more difficult life and a much worse diet? Well, the Sinclairs actually think they have a good answer to this question. And to get to it, we have to understand that those carbon dioxide gas emissions that make bread rise are not the only waste product that yeast produce when they eat wet grain. The technical term for that yeast party is fermentation, and the other resulting waste product is alcohol. So, if you leave wet grain sitting out in a bucket of water, and wild yeast colonize it like they're bound to do, the water will eventually become a very simple version of a beverage we all know as beer. In fact, when you come down to it, bread and beer, particularly this ancient simple beer, have astonishingly similar recipes. Both basically have three ingredients, some kind of grain, yeast, and water. I mean, we could even argue that beer and bread are the same food, that beer is liquid bread, bread is solid beer. Um, but the techniques, the ingredients are so similar. To the Sinclair's way of thinking, and this is a surprisingly mainstream viewpoint among today's anthropologists, it was the desire for beer 
not for bread, that caused that massive agricultural revolution. Uh, the way I see it, they, they end up being companions. But the, probably the starting point was fear, because it's, it's easier to get going if you're a, if you're a hunter-gatherer and gather these grains. And of course, you had to soak them because it just ruined your teeth if you try to eat most of them straight away. And it's not too big a stretch to see if, if a grain and water mixture were, were left even for one day, airborne yeast could settle into it and you would start to get fermentation. One of the strong motivating forces, we're not supposed to talk about it in modern history, is humans like mood-altering substances. Uh, and certainly the hunter-gatherers with all this free time consume alcohol when they fermented things. And a lot of things can be fermented. You can find berries and, and fruits, and, and you can ferment them and, and get alcohol. But these things are very seasonal. Grains provided people with a year-round supply of a fermentable product. And therefore, the, the urge was, was strong to develop these fields of grains. Bread was then perhaps developed as a way to get additional nutrition or at least some kind of solid food out of that same process, now that more and more of humanity's attention was being focused on producing grain to make beer. It's a bit of a chicken-and-the-egg situation, beer and bread, but whichever came first, both became tremendously popular. Bread, because it's very carbohydrate-dense, so it provides a lot of ready energy in a relatively small package. And beer, not only for its mood-altering capabilities, but because the process of fermentation kills many waterborne bacteria. So, for much of human history, beer was a more reliably safe beverage than plain water. When early man gave up migration, that meant they were now living in their own filth. A group of people will very quickly pollute any water supply when there isn't a basic knowledge of bacteria, of, of uh, what's safe to drink, how to keep... Uh, a water supply clear. Most people did not have safe drinking water until World War II. Um, and when you didn't understand that heating was required to kill bacteria, a, a product like beer, which, which did it, it as a side effect, was a safer drink. One of the items I read that I found fascinating was that for most of human history, most people have drunk only two beverages in their entire lives, mother's milk and beer. If you drank the water, you died. Well, I, th I think just, the, I mean, the key is that the fermented grains were, were the main main things that people consumed all through history. And all they had to consume was basically bread and beer, so it's only uh, only in the last couple hundred years where people have actually expanded their diet and get us back to the better diet that the hunter-gatherers had. This amazing story has themes that will continue through the rest of this series. Humanity's astonishing resourcefulness in making the inedible edible and the unsafe safe and, more specifically, the use of fermentation to preserve and transform food products. Both of these play a central role in the next layer of our star-spangled sandwich. Cheese. Next time on A Thought for Food.
Special thanks to our experts in this episode, Maudine Nelson, Stephen Pintaro, Michael McBurney, and Carol and Tom Sinclair, whose book, Bread, Beer, and the Seeds of Change, is available from the nonprofit publisher CABI. To learn more about the Sackler Institute, please visit us on the web at nyas.org slash whatwedo slash nutrition, on the Sackler Institute group on LinkedIn, and on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sackler Nutrition Science, where you can see photo galleries from our visits to some of the places we feature in this series. And please feel free to give us your feedback on this or any Science and the City program via email to scienceandcity at nyas.org.